You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week, and I'm here with Will Doran, Andy Spay, Colin Campbell, Charlotte Harris, and Craig Jarvis, one of the original Domecast panelists who's back with us this week to uh, talk about coverage of the hog farm trials. There was another uh, big verdict in the uh, trials involving neighbors of hog farms suing over nuisances. And uh, Charlotte, this is your first week with us on Domecast, right? Yeah. Yeah. So welcome. Charlotte is interning with us this summer, and we're actually getting close to the end of the internship. So um, you've done a lot of good work with us for us. And the latest uh, from you is the is a story about the hunting and fishing amendment that people are going to vote on this fall. Um, you took a deep dive into that, and uh, hopefully you can talk a little bit about what you found. Um, but let's start off with the hog farms. And Craig, um, a $470 million verdict um, today, although that doesn't necessarily mean that um, the company hit with it, Smithfield, is necessarily going to have to pay that much. Um, so explain that. Right. Well, there's this cap on punitive damages that the state imposed fairly within recent years, and it uh, it's going to automatically lower the amount of punitive damages quite substantially. That, in addition to the uh, much smaller compensatory damages, will probably be something around $94 million. But still, that that it sends some kind of a message. They've had three trials now. They've lost all three of them. They, meaning Murphy Brown, the big pork producer, um, they've lost all three of them. Uh, they've tried to, the plaintiffs have tried, or the defendants, Murphy Brown has tried to kind of uh, craft their case a little different, streamline things each time. These are kind of test cases to see what, how many other lawsuits will, will proceed. But uh, uh, anyway, so they, they tried some different things. It obviously didn't work because that was some kind of a message that, that was sent. That was huge. What kind of testimony did they hear from neighbors and from farmers during the course of this trial? You um, kind of went in and out of the trial that lasted about, what, three weeks, something yeah, like that? three or four, yeah. yeah. Well, the neighbors were complaining about uh, odors and uh, truck noises, delivery trucks come and go at, at, uh, in the middle of the, you know, early, in the middle of the night, uh, like flies, inordinate amount of flies and buzzards and just general disruption. Um, um, the defense to that was, to minimize that, really saying, well, they called a lot of neighbors who never complained and really didn't mind mind uh, the, what they called farm smells. You know, you're out in the country, and so that's what you you kind of expect. Uh, the defense also pointed out that there were, you know, some of these neighbors who complained had outdoor furniture that they seemed to use, which might counter their, uh, you know, claim they had to go inside all the time. And but. Um, this is, a, this is apparently a nuisance that comes and goes. It's, it wasn't like that every day. Sometimes it would be fine, but other times the neighbors said they felt like they had to you know, just kind of close up and go, go inside. Um, there was no real health issue involved, although that was something the plaintiffs tried to introduce in the beginning, that there's, you know, uh, some people had health problems that they thought were exacerbated, and the defense got very uh, frustrated with that a number of times and said, this is, you haven't made any health claims in this lawsuit. Quit talking about it. So, but it's kind of once the bell is rung, it's you can't unring it. it, it they planned it in the jury's <coughs> in the jury's mind. The uh, this idea that these are irresponsible operations that that make a huge amount of money. Murphy Brown is owned by Smithfield, which is in turn is owned by a 
Chinese company conglomerate, and needless to say, they make a lot of money and they haven't spent any of it on, uh, you know, dealing with these odors and that kind of thing. And you wrote recently about an interesting angle to all this, which is that the people involved with the lawsuit are under this gag order. And in fact, I think involved with all the lawsuits, uh, right, 20-some lawsuits, yeah. are um, involved, have a gag order put yeah. on them. They can't uh, talk about the case? Correct. And it's been confusing because the judge issued this order. It was unexpected. It was pretty sweeping. It basically said anybody connected to this case, witnesses, potential witnesses, lawyers, can't talk about it. And really he was talking about the news media. You can't talk to the news media about it because he saw that there was quite a bit of coverage in the first two trials and that concerned him. And he's faced with, like you said, 26 uh, lawsuits. There's like more than 500 plaintiffs involved. One way the judge carved out to deal with this was to set, select five cases. Those would be like test cases. So everybody can kind of figure out what kind of case they have. And uh, you know the question now for Smithfield is: Are they going to uh, are they going to settle, or is are they just going to keep taking their their blows? But the gag order um, was was unexpected. Murphy Brown argued against it, and they've appealed to, to the state uh, federal appellate court that that hampers their uh, free speech rights. They're basically saying the plaintiffs, through various uh, advocacy groups and others, are sort of dominating the debate in public, and they're the ones that are getting the message out about these horrible, uh, these horrible industrial farm operations. Murphy Brown saying, we, we need to combat this ourselves in some way, and we're, we're hampered, in, and it's a violation of the First Amendment. They've had plenty of politicians out in their defense, though. You went to something today, and Charlotte went to uh, a, a rally earlier um, during the, I think, during the second hog farm trial, um, where a lot of politicians have been defending uh, the farmers and defending Smithfield. Um, so first of all, what about the one today? What was going on? Yeah, that on? was interesting because even as they were meeting, the verdict was was coming was was had been handed down, and they were unaware of this. But this was a really high-profile, high-powered group of people that they brought into Raleigh from you know congressmen, uh, agricultural officials from several other states: Texas, Georgia, South Carolina, uh, le uh, legislators, and. Politicians of all stripes, there's like three dozen big, big wigs basically in the agriculture industry saying, we're really worried. <laughs> Somebody's got to put to these lawsuits or they're going to sweep the whole country and they're going to get rid of all your food. And this is a national security issue when you have no food. And <laughs> uh, So that's, yeah, that's where that was today. It was kind of uh, interesting. It was kind of jarring to go from that where it was, it was all about the industry and all about farmers and trying to hang on to go out, go outside and find the jury didn't see it that way at all. They totally knocked them down. And the jury didn't get to go to the uh, the farms. No. That was, that was one of the decisions that was made. Yeah, they're very on. upset with the judge uh, who's been there forever, Judge Earl Britt, and they didn't like the fact that he didn't go to this, let the jury go to visit the site. He imposed the gag order. Um, I don't know if he was the one who ruled that this was was going to be a federal case instead of a state case where it might be settled, centered in Duplin County where all these people live and they figured they'd have a much better chance than people from all over the Eastern District of North Carolina. Charlotte, you went down to Duplin County. Uh, paint a picture of that for us. That they You, get, you basically covered uh, an event where all these farmers converged on this one farm owned by one of the, uh, one of the plaintiffs in the second lawsuit. Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting scene because, uh, as Craig said, like, there's a lot of politicians painting this image of these, you know, intense 
evil almost neighbors and these out-of-state lawyers coming in and taking over and the community down in Duplin County at least is definitely buying into that which is understandable and a lot of them I think are scared of what exactly is coming in the future and what's coming for these hog farms and most of them have been on this land and it's been passed down for generations from their grandparents great-grandparents and to them it feels very personal um, which is even more interesting when you find out things like the fact that Smithfield is the one who brought the Carters into the um, trial and decided to make them, they, they don't have to name a specific family and make them um, involve them in the actual case, but they choose to in hopes that it will get brought down to a local level and then they'll be able to pull a jury members from Duplin County and obviously that didn't work in the cases so far. Um, but it's definitely interesting seeing that image of how they're rallying support in terms of these small communities and what they're, they're all upset and it impacts all of them personally. It was almost like a political rally, the one you were at, right, with signs and... Yeah, uh, absolutely. It was, it was huge. The traffic was blocking up all the streets. You couldn't, you know, there was a traffic jam out, miles out, and it seemed to stop the whole community. The other thing that I'm working on now is about how the growers, the farmers, are kind of squeezed in the middle here. They've got to do what Murphy Brown says because the two, the two farmers who lost the first two cases, Murphy Brown's taking their pigs and they're out of business. Um, they're basically saying, well, the jury ruled this a, a public nuisance. So, uh, you know, it, we'd be exposed to liability if we didn't. And I'm pretty sure Murphy Brown is, um, they aren't required to take away or like stop doing business with those farms, but they right. choose to, right. which is then interesting again, once you see those politicians being like these out of state lawyers are coming in and stopping our farms and taking away business. And there's a lot of talk of the far leftist and things like that. And it's just interesting to see what side everyone's on. There seems to be a lot of misinformation in the mix. And, and of course this is, uh, uh, has become a political issue. The, the legislature's passed a couple of bills that um, restrict these lawsuits, but meantime, these other two dozen lawsuits are, are going forward, and uh, we'll see what happens happens next and whether it ends with some kind of court settlement or um, if these things these verdicts get overturned on appeal or, or what exactly. Well, we will, be, will we be covering this through 2019? <laughs> yeah, 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 23 more of these. Um, okay. Well, um, Charlotte, so you wrote about the hunting and fishing amendment that's going to be on the ballot, one of six constitutional amendments that voters are going to see this fall. And um, a lot of people probably wonder, why is there a constitutional amendment on the ballot to protect hunting and fishing um, rights? Are these something that have been threatened? Um, so you found out what's happened. Uh, and uh, first of all, it's something that is, has been in 21 other states. 21 other states have had these kind of constitutional amendments. So what's, what's prompting these? Um, all signs are pointing to gun lobby powers. Um, it's, it was a really interesting thing to dig into because when I began it, most legislators and activists involved who I spoke to were like, we don't know why this is on the books and we don't know where this is coming from. And then the more you look into the history of similar legislation in places like Montana and Indiana and um, you see that there are these influences from the NRA and uh, foundations like the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, which are providing these template language. And to my understanding, it's basically a way to get voters out in the November elections um, is part of it. And it's also just generally um, a depiction of how much power gun, gun lobbyists are playing into state politics at this point. 
You went out with a, uh, a hunter, um, a, a bird uh, hunter, I guess. Well, so tell us a little bit about who he is and um, what he had to say about why uh, we would need such a thing. Yeah, so I went out with Stephen Faust, um, and he was a great guy. He was really easy to work with. Uh, he's a, he, run, he directs guides and trains dogs and breeds them and sells hunting dogs. Um, and he basically was saying that he does feel like hunting is under attack and does feel that those rights need to be protected, but also agreed that none of those effects are really going to be seen any time in his lifetime, maybe in his kid's lifetime. Um, he talked a lot about just how much hunters play into the conservation efforts in North Carolina, um, how a lot of the money from federal taxes that are on guns or hunting equipment or licenses goes straight back into state conservation. I think North Carolina got 16 million, 16 million appointed for different conservation projects from that tax this year, and, or in 2017. And it was interesting seeing that perspective because he does feel under attack, and it's it's definitely one of those things where you kind of see two opposing sides working for the same goal of wanting in environmentalist groups who want to protect the land and make sure it's conserved and used properly and responsibly, and hunters who are on a similar level of wanting that land conserved for their own personal reasons. It sounds like in some of the other states uh, that have these, there hasn't really been too many um, effects that people can point to one way or the other. Um, but one thing that people were saying about this amendment is that it could have some uh, con other consequences that might be unexpected. Um, there's uh, a reference in here to using traditional methods of hunting. And um, what were opponents of the, of the bill saying that that could end up doing? Yeah, a lot of the concern came from this vague language of traditional methods, um, which if you go onto the website of these big lob gun lobby organizations, the template that they're laying out is supposed to um, enshrine different methods, including trapping, which is a major one that's causing concern because um, it's gotten a lot of pushback just for being an inhumane hunting method. And um, that's what a lot of, like Representative Harrison said, voiced concern about that. A couple other um, people against opponents of the bill voiced concern just about how this could potentially, with the vague language, protect those different methods, but also just a bigger concern of why is our government pushing legislation that includes any misleading language that isn't clearly labeling what's going on and what they're trying to protect. Why do they feel under attack? Um, so hunting is declining just across the country and uh, also in North Carolina. 16%. I just read that in yeah. the story, yes. Um, and so basically what's happening is the U.S. Wildlife Service puts out a survey every year, and recently they found that more people are going out to use different these public lands for wildlife watching, so that includes photographing, hiking, just you know generally taking it in, and less and less are we seeing this public game land being used for hunting, and there's just a decline in general which isn't necessarily, though, through any kind of attack on hunting or far-left movement to suppress hunters. We've seen no cases of any kind of hunter harassment. We talked to uh, people from the North Carolina Wildlife Commission, and they said they couldn't think of a single example where they had to intervene or investigate an actual attack on hunting because all states have hunter harassment laws in place at this point. Oh, okay. So PETA has never harassed someone like Stephen Faust or anything like <laughs> not, that? Not out in the woods, no. Maybe on a legislative kind of level, but there's no, been no actual harassment of hunters, which is kind of the image we seem to get when, we dis when, this, when this bill was first presented. Um, so this is, you mentioned the constitutional amendment language 
And um, this week we had um, some more debate about what the uh, constitutional amendments are actually going to say on the ballot. Um, Governor Cooper vetoed late last week um, some uh, a bill that would remove the um, short titles of these uh, constitutional amendments uh, from the ballot and just have uh, the language as passed by the legislature. So this um, commission that was tasked with uh, writing these short titles would basically uh, not write anything except for a summary that would not be on the ballot but that voters would see. Um, and the legislature should be coming back in to override Cooper's veto uh, along with one other veto um, tomorrow, Saturday. Uh, and uh, meantime, this Constitutional Amendment Commission met. And uh, Colin, what, what was the gist of that? Um, one person on the commission didn't even show up. Yeah, so there's a lot of confusion around this meeting this week because we're sort of in limbo now. Uh, the bill has been vetoed. Um, the legislature has scheduled this override vote, and they seem pretty confident they have the votes needed to do a successful override. Um, but the bill is not law yet until the override vote. So the commission was going to go ahead and meet um, this week and uh, start the process for some of the work that they were doing. Um, technically, they're still, as of right now, required to write ballot captions, even though within a day or so, they probably will not be required to do that. Um, and the language on the uh, ballot itself will just say constitutional amendment. Uh, so they held their meeting um, on, I believe, the Tuesday or Wednesday morning. Um, and the two Democrats showed up, Elaine Marshall, the Secretary of State, Josh Stein, the Attorney General, uh, and they found out at the last minute that the Republican Paul Coble was not coming. Uh, he said they needed to just reschedule the meeting and wait until some of the uh, legal confusion around the bill was done. He wanted to push the meeting back into next week. Uh, so they ended up having a discussion um, in which they talked about uh, some issues surrounding the constitutional amendments. Um, the tone from both Stein and Marshall, as I uh, read the quote, seemed to be, uh, pretty critical, which then prompted the legislature to say, see, we knew you guys were going to uh, politicize these amendments. This is why we need this legislation to take the power to explain them away for you and just let voters do the research on their own. Um, so that uh, became a bit of a showdown in, in that meeting. Uh, they will have a meeting next week. Um, as far as we know, uh, Republican Paul Coble, the legislative services officer for the General Assembly, will be there, um, and he's been uh, circulating some uh, possible summaries. These are things that won't be used on the ballot. They'll be used uh, by the Board of Elections and some materials that are available at the polls and uh, other venues uh, for folks trying to do some research on what the amendments do. And uh, Coble wants them to use either summaries uh, prepared by the nonpartisan staff of the legislature uh, or summaries that uh, he sent out uh, earlier today, Friday, uh, that were prepared by the UNC School of Government rather than uh, have the commission itself try to draft the language or um, sort of come up with their own interpretations of it. Uh, what will be interesting to see is there's been a lot of talk this week uh, about sort of an unintended consequence uh, or perhaps an intended consequence in the judicial uh, vacancies amendment. That's the one that would take uh, the power to fill judicial vacancies away from the governor, uh, create a uh, commission that would vet the nominees, and then the legislature would whittle down to a top couple of uh, picks and the governor would pick from those, um, but certainly, certainly as a shift of power. Uh, one of the things that uh, Josh Stein pointed out during the meeting about that, which was interesting, uh, is he believes that uh, there's a sort of caveat in there that would allow, because the, uh, the way the amendment's written allows judicial appointments bills not to be vetoed or have uh, veto power with the governor, 
uh, that legislators could insert other unrelated legislation in there and circumvent the entire veto power. So you could have a situation, uh, at least according to, to Stein and I think Senator Jeff Jackson's interpretations, uh, where you could put the entire budget in a bill that also had some uh, judicial appointments in it, um, and then ostensibly uh, the governor couldn't veto that. So that's another aspect of that that will be interesting to see if any clarification is given in these summaries or um, if that's an aspect of it that just doesn't get mentioned um, in this document that's going to come out next week. So they just appoint a judge in every bill that they pass. Uh, yeah. Just and also out. we are appointing, a, we appoint this judge and that prevents a veto. Uh, yeah. Uh, so they're um, saying like, essentially are we taking away the veto power from the governor without saying as much? And um, I haven't seen a whole lot of sort of nonpartisan legal scholarship on that to know exactly whether that's true, but uh, certainly that's a concern that some folks have. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, we'll be watching that. And also um, the legislature uh, is expected to override Cooper Saturday on uh, a bill targeting uh, a candidate for the Supreme Court uh, and saying that he cannot have a uh, R next to his name uh, and that he has to run with, with no party label because uh, he changed his party uh, uh, affiliation just uh, shortly before filing. Um, so that's in the state Supreme Court race. And uh, Will, tell us a little bit about why that race is, uh, is such a big deal this year. Sure. Well, um, that is the, the marquee race that's going to be on the, the ballot uh, this fall, apart from the, the constitutional amendments. Um, but in, as far as just a an election with people in it, um, there are very few major statewide races. Uh, neither of our U.S. senators up for election. We're not voting on a governor. We're not voting lieutenant governor or anything like that. So the Supreme Court race is the main uh, statewide election that we're going to, that, that everybody in the state is going to be able to vote on. And like you said, they're going to be in on Saturday probably to override Governor Cooper's uh, veto of that bill. If that happens, I would imagine that we would probably see a lawsuit um, from Chris Anglin, who's the candidate who's affected uh, by this bill. Uh, like you mentioned, there are, th there are three people running for the Supreme Court. Um, Chris Anglin is one. Uh, the incumbent uh, justice who's seeking re-election is Barbara Jackson. She's a Republican. And then uh, Anita Earls, the Democratic opponent, is also running in that race. And, it's really kind of a race between Jackson and Earls. Um, I just wrote a big story on their campaign fundraising. They've both already raised hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, they're the, the choices of their two respective parties. They're going to be getting a ton, probably millions of dollars in outside spending as we get a little closer into the election this fall. Um, and um, Anglin is also a Republican like Jackson, um, although Previous to filing, uh, he had been a registered Democrat, switched to be a registered Republican shortly before he filed to enter and entered the race and is now running as a Republican. So uh, hence this law that the legislature passed kind of at the last minute here. Um, the law didn't name him specifically, but I don't think anyone was under the impression that uh, it was not passed in order to target him. I think the language is, you know, if you change your party, registration within 90 days um, of registering, you don't get to have your affiliation listed on the ballot uh, along with the rest of the people. Yeah, it affects a few other down-ballot candidates, but you have to assume the legislature uh, was not really concerned about somebody running for superior court in Mecklenburg County that prompting this. Well, and actually, uh, I, you know, uh, Colin, we were there when they passed it, and there, there was discussion. People were asking the legislators, okay, well, do you know who all this affects? And 
uh, none of the bill sponsors could answer that question. They they didn't know if it would affect. Yeah, the elections else. board only came out with the full list like the day after because none of them were were present to. Uh, provide a list because the bill came out so abruptly and was passed so quickly after the fact that yeah. uh, there wasn't a lot of time to, to look into that. But uh, anyway, I guess we'll, we'll almost be looking more forward to next week than uh, Saturday because Anglin's basically said already, I think Monday he will file some sort of court action and then there's a, uh, yeah. the clock will be ticking pretty quickly after that because I think Wednesday is the deadline to set the way things are going to look on the ballot. So if a judge is going to act in, on behalf of Anglin, um, and put this law on hold, uh, they're only going to have maybe 48 hours to do that. Yeah, and yeah, unless it, the judge just throws out whatever lawsuit um, England files, I, I have to imagine it'll probably get held up because usually, you know, it's kind of hard to finish a court case in two days. Um. <laughs> yeah, the, the schedule of uh, court hearings doesn't really allow for that compressed a, a process for sure. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, you know, of course, uh, you know, lawyers... Uh, <laughs> know how to file lawsuits and everything, and so we'll, we'll see what happens. But you mentioned that they, both of the main candidates here, have gotten a lot of money. In fact, you reported that they've gotten more than the uh, candidates in 2016, and what we thought then was an expensive race um, had had gotten already. And we've still got months left uh, before the election. Uh, still could be. Uh, we still don't know how much outside money is going to flow in. But um, but who who are some of the donors who are giving to Earls and to uh, Jackson. Yeah, both of them uh, have a lot of just kind of the usual suspects in the political arena. Um, Barbara Jackson has been getting uh, the maximum donation from Bob Luddy and Art Pope and their wives. Um, Anita Earls has been getting the maximum donations from Dean Debnum and Jim Goodman and their wives. And uh, right now, Earls is uh, far ahead of Jackson. She She's got around $500,000 that she's raised as of the end of June, and uh, Jackson has less than half of that. She's got about $225,000. Um, but like we saw in 2016, the main spending really comes from these outside groups. Um, and Anyone say banjo ad? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Bring back the, the Paul Newby banjo song about him being a fair judge, and some group funded that. I'm sure we'll get that with, uh, with Jackson. She suggested... Uh, the uh, cartoon Action Jackson theme song when I tweeted something about this this week. So uh, looking forward to some uh, judicial campaign songwriting. But anyway. Yeah, and yeah, there's uh, re really the money in these judicial races is in the outside groups. But that's not to discount the, the people who give directly to the candidates. And uh, like I said, some of that is just, you know, political activists who want, you know, their, their side to win. Um, then you also see people who have you know, a vested interest in who's in the court. Uh, both of them have been getting a lot of donations from attorneys. Um, Anita Earls has been getting uh, a lot of really plaintiff's attorneys donating to her, people who do personal injury cases, medical malpractice cases, things like that. Um, uh, kind of the, yeah, the plaintiff side of civil cases, whereas Jackson's donors have tended to be more on the defense side of civil cases, the, the business interests real estate developers, medical packs, things like that. Um, so that I think that's kind of how the, uh, I, at least the donor class seems to, to think that these two judges might, you know, come down on the side of, uh, you know, on cases. But obviously, you know, judges uh, are very clear that they are not beholden to their donors and that they do not, you know, rule on cases based on, you know, who supports them, but rather on the facts. Of course. And uh, 
Will, you, so you looked into the uh, um, latest campaign finance reports for this race. But Colin, you were looking into um, some of the other uh, reports. What, what did we learn uh, when we see who's giving to who this week? Yeah, so I looked at, um, I guess while we're still on the, the judicial subject, I also looked at the Court of Appeals uh, races. Um, and the uh, money dynamic seems to be almost flipped in those where uh, the Republicans in most of those races have the cash advantage, unlike the Supreme Court race where Anita Earls definitely has a pretty – uh, strong advantages, as Will mentioned. I also looked into uh, looking at sort of the business side of um, campaign spending, all the political action committees uh, for different uh, industry groups and business groups. Um, and I was a little surprised to see uh, the, the biggest spenders were the um, Incidental Society, uh, another group about uh, involving the assisted living sort of facility uh, group uh, is top with about 70,000 or so. Uh, spent in the second quarter uh, to give to different campaigns. Um, yeah, what's on the dentist's agenda that they're? Uh, yeah, um, that's what I was trying to figure out. They didn't have anything in the short session. They may be, you know, playing the long game and looking towards some um, goals they have uh, for the 2019 long section session and are giving to lawmakers um, as a result of that. Uh, there were some interesting ones of the groups that did have um, uh, business before the legislature in the short session. Uh, there's a pretty decent amount of spending on behalf of the. Uh, North Carolina Port Council and the uh, Smithfield Foods Pack, of course, both of which uh, very associated with this uh, farm bill that we discussed earlier, uh, the various hog lawsuits, and uh, so obviously uh, one of their legislative goals for the short session was the farm bill uh, limiting future uh, nuisance lawsuits against hog farms, um, and they gave about uh, $19,000, $20,000 each total to a, a number of different candidates, a mix of Democrats and Republicans. The interesting thing was that uh, even though they gave to a lot of Democrats, only one of the Democrats they gave to, Senator Don Davis, uh, actually voted in favor of the Farm Bill. The other Democrats that got their money uh, then turned around and, and voted against this. Um, and I guess the other industry group that was uh, uh, definitely putting a push on during the short session was uh, the company Aaron's Incorporated. Um, they the, uh, operate those stores where you can rent to own appliances and furniture and that sort of thing. Uh, they were pushing a, a regulatory bill that would essentially regulate their industry under terms that they had sort of drafted. Consumer advocates were upset about that bill coming out late in session without a whole lot of uh, input. So that ended up dying out, didn't actually go to the House floor. Um, but Aaron's uh, had formed a PAC earlier this year and given about eighteen or 19000 to uh, different campaigns of, of legislators, uh, obviously in, t- in t- anticipation that they were going to be asking for uh, this new regulatory framework. Um, Andy, I uh, forgot to mention this earlier, but since Colin uh, brings up the hog farms again, um, you had a fact check this week that was related to hog farms. Um, so you checked Steve Troxler, which I think might be the first time PolitiFact has checked uh, Agriculture uh, Commissioner Steve Troxler. So what was his claim? It is, but it won't be the last, probably. Uh, Steve Troxler has been Agriculture Commissioner since 2005, and I think uh, by trade, before he became Ag Commissioner, he was a tobacco farmer. Uh, And so he is often a vocal um, advocate for farmers in general, uh, as as one might expect. And he was at that rally that Charlotte covered in Duplin County, where there was that uh, traffic jam, the first one in the (laughs) county's history, apparently. Uh, And... From what I can tell, and I only had the audio that she provided, he got on stage and said, you know, how, how could hog farms be so bad if they're not uh, producing a natural disasters like we've seen previously? And he said, I'm going to paraphrase his quote, but he said, uh, the Black River's uh, water quality is rated at the top 
in the state. And so we, the Black River is a um, tributary of the Cape Fear River, which has had uh, lots of pollution problems stemming from hog waste throughout the decades. Oh gosh, since the 90s when we've had hurricanes, we won a Pulitzer for our coverage of um, uh, the pollutions, that, uh, the pollution that uh, those hog farms caused and uh, things like that. Um, so we looked into it and he was right. He's right that the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality rates it as an outstanding water body. And that is... So even though it flows right through hog country, right through Duplin County and others, it's got... It's one of the top rivers for it's water rated. quality. rated, yes. It's classified by the Department of Environmental Quality as the top uh, water quality in the state. And there's 900, 900 others like it out of 13,000. So that puts it in the top 7%. So it sounds, you know, at, at, from the outset, it sounds like he has a point and is right. Well, when you dig a little deeper, um, or dive a little deeper in this case, uh, you find out that uh, DEQ isn't measuring, isn't even looking for some of the biggest indicators of pollution, those being uh, nitrogen and phosphorus. And so when we talk to what, the uh, North Carolina Conservation Network and Sierra Club and an environmentalist at Duke, his name's Reich Longest, and uh, Mike Mullen, he's a professor at UNCW, all these folks say, well, yeah, it's, that's the label. But if you go out there and test, as Mullen students do every month, you'll find that the rates of nitrogen and phosphorus and uh, fecal coliform, which is from um, hog waste, uh, are elevated. And if we had standards for nitrogen and, nitrogen and phosphorus, we would probably be exceeding them. So all that to say, you can't find what you don't look for. And North Carolina is not looking for some of the biggest indicators of pollution. So we gave Mr. Troxler uh, half true. Okay. Um, that is your latest fact check, but um, there are many more that you can find at PolitiFact NC. And uh, while we're giving ourselves a plug here, we should mention that we're expanding our fact checking uh, firepower. Um, we've got a new grant from the local news lab um, that's going to allow us to um, bring on uh, another person to do fact-checking along with Andy. And we're going to um, have some help from students at Duke. Uh, and uh, we're going to be able to find a lot more claims to fact-check um, with help uh, from them. And we're also going to be going around the state sort of evangelizing fact-checking. We're going to be promoting it to... Um, other news organizations offering to let them publish our, uh, uh, our stories that, that Andy and others write, uh, checking politicians' claim, and we're going to be encouraging uh, people to send us ideas for claims to check um, and for other news organizations to do their own fact-checking. So um, look for, in the next couple months, it has the, uh, as we get closer to the election, a big ramp up of uh, NNO and fact checking in collaboration with PolitiFact and with uh, with Duke and with UNC. Uh, this is facts are something that can even bring Duke and UNC together. Mm. Um, so can so can Domecast because we've got some Duke and UNC fans in here. Um, so I think that's it for now until we come back with headliner of the week. So please stay with us. Thank you.
Melissa from Michigan. I work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school, but I still can't afford to put food on our table. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Headliner of the week. 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 Who's hot? Welcome back to Domecast. Now it's time for Headliner of the Week. Uh, let's start with Will Doran. Will, who's your Headliner of the Week? Uh, well, I'm going to go with former President Barack Obama. Uh, he made news for endorsing a bunch of candidates nationwide uh, recently, including uh, several Democrats running for legislative seats here in North Carolina. Um, you know, you, you might expect that, you know, Obama would just endorse all Democrats running for office and say, hey, just go vote for a Democrat. But that's not what he did. Uh, he just picked some specific people. So I don't I don't know if that is a just a, you know, hint to donors of, hey, these are some people to throw money at, or if it's maybe just an indication of which seats the Democrats think are uh, winnable and flippable. Because uh, here in North Carolina, that's really what you saw, is the, the people he was endorsing tend to be in uh, Democrats who are running against incumbent Republicans in kind of swing districts. Uh, one exception to that was uh, Wiley Nickel, who is running for a, uh, a new open state Senate seat in Cary that is uh, very Democratic-leaning, and he's probably a shoo-in. But Wiley Nickel worked for Obama, so it would be kind of a slap in the face if Obama did not endorse him um, in his campaign. But other than that, in the more competitive races, he also endorsed uh, Rachel Hunt, who is running against Bill Brawley out uh, in the Charlotte area, and she is the daughter of former Governor Jim Hunt. Um, you also had uh, here several races here in the Triangle. Um, he endorsed the opponent of Nelson Dollar of Kerry. Uh, Dollar is the lead budget writer for the Republicans uh, in the House, and uh, uh, Julie Von Hafen is running against him and got the Obama endorsement. Also, Terrence Everett got the Obama endorsement. He's running against Chris Malone up in Wake Forest. Um, There's some others, but those were probably some of the, the most notable ones. Okay. Former President Obama uh, getting doing his what I think they called the first his first wave of endorsements. So we may see more of these. Uh, Andy Spay, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to go with House Speaker Tim Moore, uh, and I say that not because he's at the center of almost every piece of legislation that passes or fails uh, or is vetoes that are overridden, uh, but because this week he was in the news for something much simpler, just mowing uh, a neighbor's grass. Uh, I don't think he lives in the same neighborhood, but he was out canvassing, knocking on doors when uh, he chatted up this woman. Her name is... Gwendolyn Feimster, and she's a registered Democrat, and she joked, what have you done for me lately, essentially, uh, and he said, what? Well, she said the district, and he said, well, I could, you know, start by cutting your grass, and apparently they left it as a joke, but then a day later, yes, a day later or the next day, yes, uh, she came home to find him cutting her grass, uh, and he said, according to this story in the Shelby Star, that uh, he had planned to finish and leave so she wouldn't know that it was him who did it. 
but um, she found out and contacted the paper and wanted to tell people and now says she's going to vote for him. So he's really setting the bar high for politicians here, uh, doing various uh, household chores for. for I know voters. what I'm going to do I mean, next time a politician knocks on my door. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere <laughs> got some laundry for you, fool. <laughs> Somewhere there's a Republican staffer thinking, all right, how long did it take to mow the yard? How many people do we have? How many people are in your district? Can we mow everyone's yard in the district? <laughs> So I'll say 10 more for some old-fashioned um, methods on changing minds. Okay. All right. Tim Moore's Lawn Service in the hat for Headliner of the Week. Uh, Colin Campbell, who's your Headliner of the Week? I'm going with NC Policy Watch, which is the uh, left-leaning uh, news website that's part of the NC Justice Center. They were under fire this week for an opinion column they published uh, recently about uh, the U.S. Supreme Court and the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, the article was by a guy named Frank DeFilippo, uh, who's a Maryland journalist, um, and he wrote that um, the Supreme Court will soon be, quote, so packed with Catholics that it'll be telling the Vatican what to do. Uh, that didn't sit terribly well with um, Senator, Tamber, uh, Senator Kathy Harrington, a Republican from Gaston County, uh, who happens to be a Catholic, who called it a bigoted, hate-filled rant written by a man who thinks God is dead and is desperately hoping he's right. She said, goes on to say people of faith should never be mocked. Uh, her statement was put out uh, along with some other uh, criticism by the Civitas Institute, the conservative-leaning group um, that suggested it was hypocritical of uh, Policy Watch to publish what they described as an anti-Catholic uh, opinion, uh, given that Policy Watch had uh, last year criticized Civitas for uh, linking to an article that um, was kind of anti-Semitic uh, comments about uh, Attorney General Josh Stein uh, Civitas later, I think, ultimately apologized for that and actually shut down the uh, link aggregator website called the Carolina Plot Hound uh, in the wake of, of that scandal. Uh, but uh, these uh, two different uh, groups on either side of the aisle are feuding again over uh, what should be considered offensive and whether someone published something offensive. So for that, uh, NC Policy Watch is my pick this week. Okay. NC Policy Watch over uh, comments about Catholics. Uh, Charlotte Harris, who's your headliner of the week, your inaugural headliner? My headliner is Charles Helwick, the chairman of the Wake County Republican Party, who was quoted this week saying, all the snowflakes, snowflakes need to take a deep breath and relax. And that was in response to um, the Regal Cinemas in Cary, which was passing out um, MAGA hats at the opening of the Death of a Nation um, filming. So I just thought this was a really interesting story. There was a lot of criticism on just, no one wants to go to the movies and be um, berated with some political banter, so I thought that was interesting. All right, so Charles Helwig uh, of the Wake County Republican Party, who was uh, defending uh, this uh, booth that was set up uh, that Andy wrote about uh, at the the movie theater in Cary, passing out uh, Trump merchandise, Make America Great Again merchandise, uh, to people going to see uh, you know, what have you, Jurassic Park and, and other things like that that maybe didn't expect to necessarily be solicited while they're uh, going to their movie. Um, I think it goes better with your popcorn than a nice red MAGA hat. The, uh, uh, the theater did tell Andy that, uh, that this was uh, essentially was against their policy or at least said that soliciting was against um, the, the theater chain's policy and that they would have a talk with the, uh, with the people involved with this, so... Uh, so Charles Helwig in the hat. Craig Jarvis, uh, welcome back to Headliner of the Week. Thank Who you. is your headliner? Well, uh, in keeping with kind of a theme today, the, uh, it's gonna, my headliner is going to be the uh, collaboratory at UNC 
which as I recall the legislature set up as a policy and research group a few years ago I think to look at Jordan Lake issues well uh, earlier this year of course some uh, chemical called Gen X was found in the lower Cape Fear River uh, then lo and behold subsequent testing has founded traces of it in Jordan Lake and Cary and uh, so um, what we know now is the, besides the five, we know how they're going to spend the five million that the legislature just gave them in the new budget. Uh, they announced they're going to be forming these teams of fairly uh, high-powered, well-known scientists from several universities in the state, and just kind of spend the next year uh, seeing if there is a problem, if there is a problem, what to do about it. And uh, uh, it's kind of an interesting time. It, you know, it's, it's 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 suddenly a very important question whether this stuff is anywhere else in the state. And they're going to start by checking the entire state in one form or another. Okay. What's in our water? We'll, uh, we'll find out more about that uh, with some work being done at the UNC Collaboratory. Um, so i got to go with Tim Moore because I, I love this idea of uh, um, some of the most powerful politicians, one of the most powerful politicians of the state, um, coming out to, uh, to mow a voter's lawn. Um, so Tim Moore is our headliner of the week, House Speaker Tim Moore. And that means Andy is our winner uh, this week. So nothing has changed. I, I have yet to win. Let's. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll consult Brian Anderson, Domecast historian Brian Anderson, to see. But I would think that you probably have won at some point. Um, all right. So Andy wins this week, and that's it for headliner of the week, and that's it for Domecast. Please catch us next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.